think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello and welcome to episode two of The Boys in Short Pants. This week we've got an interview for you and we're going to roll that right now. We're joined today by Professor Jennifer Robson, who's one of the professors in our Master's of Political Management program, and also hosts her own podcast uh, through Canada 2020 with another one of our professors, Rob Silver, and it's entitled Brief Remarks. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Uh, do you mind giving yourself a little introduction? Um, well, I can add, I'm, so I'm Jennifer Robson. I'm a uh, assistant professor in political management at Carleton University. Um, prior to Carleton, I spent some time working on the Hill, working in the uh, federal public service, and I also spent 10 years in the voluntary sector. And right now, you are still working for the government in some capacity. Do you mind tell us, not telling us a little about that? Ah, okay. Yes. Yeah, so I have been uh, named as a member of an expert panel, so it's actually not working for per se. It's an Consulting, consulting with the government? Um, so, uh, Budget 2016, uh, the Minister of Finance announced uh, the intent to review uh, tax expenditures. Uh, there uh, is an expert panel. Uh, I am a member of that. So, yes, there's a letter of agreement between myself and the Department of Finance. I think, as a matter of fact, you can probably access all of this stuff online. Yeah. So, yeah. so just a little disclosure before we start Absolutely. talking about uh, some of the most pressing and interesting uh, topics related to taxes. And that is going to mean there, um, I'm happy to to talk about my own personal views, but obviously anything that I'm going to be chatting with you guys about or it has nothing to do with kind of, you know, any advice or views that the, the panel has given, right? I am still subject to a letter of confidentiality. Yeah, so. absolutely. Okay. This is all, should all just be sort of general high-level policy. Sounds uh, good. That anyone versed in the policy of this would be able to uh, let yeah. us know. Um, so I was hoping to start off with actually the benchmark tax system which is something, before I took your course, I was completely unaware of, and I found it to be incredibly fascinating because, uh, as myself as a fiscal conservative, I was sort of surprised to know so little about how the tax system mm -hmm. in our country set up with that sort of underpinning some of my own personal beliefs. Okay. Um, so do you mind telling us, first of all, what the benchmark tax system is? I will I will endeavor to, although, um, so first of all, I want to say that I'm, I'm thrilled that you found it really <laughs> interesting. And I'm glad that, you know, after 12 weeks of discussing it, that you kind of feel like you've, you've got some ideas. I've got somewhat of a grasp on it okay. now, yeah. This is great. This is great. So I will try and, and do in, in, what, less than a minute and a half what we cover in 12 weeks. Sure. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, let me back up. In Canada, we actually have multiple tax systems. Remember, that's important to keep in mind. So there's the federal taxing, uh, taxation power, provincial, and then also local and municipal. Uh, let me focus on the federal system principally. The uh, federal system of taxation, actually, don't forget, includes income taxes. It includes um, other sources of, of revenues. Uh, it includes a consumption tax in the form of the goods and services tax. Um, and then other things like duties, right? So there are a number of different ways that you might want to organize your tax system. Your benchmark system, for better clarity, I guess, for your listeners, is basically what's, what's, the, what's your starting point? What's your frame of reference around what will be taxable and at what kinds of rates, okay? So Canada has notionally anyway, at the federal level anyway, um, an idea of a comprehensive income system, which means the principle there is that unless I say that that income is excluded, it's taxable. And then we have our progressive rate structure. And that's, that the, that's kind of the broad 
starting point. The, the buck is a buck is a buck principle. Which comes from, as the, you will uh, recall, the um, Royal Commission on Taxation, uh, Kenneth Carter's commission uh, from 1962 to 66 was when they reported. And yes, so that's, that was basically Carter's position, was that a buck is a buck. It shouldn't matter how you earn the income, um, but that we it all ought to be treated as the same for tax purposes. Um, now, uh, people have bun fights, right, about fundamentally what ought to be and not uh, included, included in, in, in the that benchmark, benchmark system. system. Let me tell you how the Department of Finance treats it, okay? So they say um, that we use a model um, that basically excludes only the following things. Um, first of all, imputed rent. So if you're a homeowner, we don't tax you on the basis of what it might otherwise have cost you to rent a comparable property. And we also don't uh, tax non-market transfers. Um, I don't know if over the holidays you maybe got some money under the Christmas tree or in your stocking. Non-taxable, right? So, so non-market transfers between individuals. Those are out. So in theory, if yep. you were to set up a comprehensive system without these exemptions, without these carve-outs from the benchmark, mm -hmm. something like a Christmas gift is a transfer of wealth, and therefore it would be taxed at market value. So if you were using a like just an absolute sort of, um, you know, uh, hardcore definition of the Hague-Simmons uh, Hague uh, definition of, of income, it's what's your net change in resources from one point in time to another point in time. We have the concept of the tax year, right? And so at least in theory, Everything, everything would be included in that. There are lots of good reasons, though, to define a benchmark system that excludes certain pieces. Canada's definition of the benchmark system, when we start to look at, well, what are then all the deviations, which is how you get to the definition of what's an expenditure, we tend to be pretty hard on ourselves compared to other countries. So what is an expenditure? It sounds mm -hmm. like, I, I find the term a little misleading <laughs> because it sounds like you're spending money on something where that's right. not really the case. Yeah, Do you mind we, taking us through that? We may be inclined to think of tax expenditures as money you get from taxes that you then spend, but uh, there's a more technical definition that, yeah, Professor Robson talks There about. is a more technical definition. So the first time this, this uh, term shows up is in 1967. Stanley Surrey is giving a luncheon speech. I believe it was a luncheon. Um, and uses the term tax expenditure to mean a set of exemptions, deductions, and credits that reduce taxation of an individual or firm, as the case may be, depending on your unit of taxation, and therefore reduce government revenues. Actually, here at Carleton, um, some of the early uh, work on tax expenditures in Canada was done by Alan Maslov, um, who's with the School of Public Policy and Administration upstairs, and he talked about them as special provisions in tax laws that provide preferential treatment to give targeted relief or incentives. So, a couple of different ideas that are wrapped up in there, right? So number one, a tax expenditure is some kind of deviation from your benchmark system, right? It's some sort of carve-out or special treatment in some way, shape, or form, and it reduces government revenues. So the way that you measure the value of the tax expenditure is by trying to figure out how much revenue would government otherwise be getting but for this um, exemption. So what's an example of one? Yeah. Um, well, let me give you an example. Let me give you a couple of examples. Because tax expenditures in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. There are sometimes reasons to have tax expenditures that are structural, right? In other words, 
these are things that for policy reasons, tax policy reasons, reasons that are internal to the, you know, high functioning, efficient, effective tax system that you want to have on the books. And there are others that are non-structural, right, that they're pursuing policy objectives that are outside of the tax system, but just using the tax system instead of other possible avenues, like a direct program, for example. So here's one that's um, uh, fairly structural in nature, I would say. Um, for example, um, the non-taxation of uh, capital gains until realization. So, sorry, that sounds like an awful lot of technical jargon. <laughs> so, okay. So a capital gain has to do with the increase in value of an asset from point one to point two, right? In Canada, um, when you have a taxable capital gain, we don't tax you at the time that you necessarily see the increase in the asset. We tax you at the time that you dispose of the asset, right? The time that you sell the cottage or the business or whatever it is. Um, and now that could actually mean that somebody has saved on taxes, right? They've had that deferral over time. But there's a good reason to do that administratively. It's actually really, really difficult to collect information so at the time save, that the gain is realized. They'd save over, so an example of this would be, say you have a $100,000 house, mm -hmm. and over 10 years the value doubles, goes up to 200000 mm -hmm. Your equity in that house has doubled, the value of that asset has doubled. Right. But over that 10 years, you haven't paid anything to the government. Uh, you haven't paid interest on that money. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were paying sort of a 10% increase every year, the government would end up with more money at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And here you're pocketing the difference because you're not transferring that asset. But from an administrative perspective, it would be difficult for a government to tax you on the equity in your house, even though you have inherently gained money and equity is used by banks to determine different things like mm -hmm. uh, how eligible you are for lines of credit and various things. But that this isn't a practical way to set up a taxation or to work your benchmark. With one caveat, which I would say is remember, um, housing wealth is non-taxable in our federal income tax system. Yeah, I, yeah. so I was looking through some of the carve-outs, some mm -hmm. of the tax expenditures. And one of the ones uh, I think a lot of people will be familiar with is at the grocery store that we don't pay GST on food or on common food items, mm -hmm. milk, bread, eggs. Mm -hmm. On that list, there's also other interesting ones like music lessons and legal hmm. services, mm -hmm. uh, legal aid services. Right. Uh, and in Parliament last year, I believe it was, there were uh, feminine hygiene products was added to this list of exemptions. Exempt. Right. And so the idea, as I understand it, with some of these is to make these more accessible to sort for female hygiene products as well as food and sort of your staples of life. It's to reduce the tax burden on these products and sort of make it more progressive and more commonly available? So um, remember, GST is actually not an income tax, it's a consumption tax, yes. right? And so with any system, whether it's income or consumption-based, there's going to be some minimum level of exemption, right, that we just say, so for example, in our income tax system, there's the basic personal amount yep. that we all get to claim, right? Uh, with consumption taxes, um, yes, there is, you know, some... Uh, need to then define what is a minimum level of consumption that we think people are entitled to by virtue of the fact that they exist, right? That they are entitled to consume at least a minimum amount before hitting taxation. And people have all kinds of good bun fights about what should and should not be included within that basket, 
right? So um, does it necessarily make it more progressive? Well, no, not necessarily. Um, I would say that the mechanism that the tax uh, policy mechanism that we use more for the, the progressive goals um, have to do with the GST, the refundable GST credit, right? Which is at the, you know, at the end, once we've figured yeah. out kind of your total... Um, yeah, sort of as a means testing relative to... So the GST credit relies on um, how uh, how large your consumption unit is, right? The size of your your household and, and its total uh, total income, um, and then we we give you a refundable check, right? Once every once every quarter. Two right? is it quarter? Yeah, it's quarter. Yeah. quarterly. Yeah. I'm glad doesn't know two years. Ah, <laughs> I get it. Unfortunately, so. <laughs> okay, there, there you go. Um, so why do governments use tax expenditures as mm -hmm. a policy making tool rather than say programs? Right. So um, I think there are a couple of different or reasons. Or programs or, say, changing right. the benchmark would also sure. be another option. Ah, okay. So a change to a benchmark. So <laughs> that's an interesting set of questions to unpack there, actually. Um, there is uh, some very reasonable and I think real debate about whether or not over time, actually, uh, exemptions uh, and expenditures to act one on top of the other serve to, in fact, change the benchmark. Right yeah. in practice, if right. not in principle, um, there are going to be times governments are using tax expenditures because, as I said, this is the most efficient and effective way. Either it's part of achieving a structural goal within the tax system itself, or all else being equal, they've looked at other ways to uh, pursue the same policy goal. That could be running a program, could be offering a direct cash incentive, could be you know some other form of subsidization, it could be legislation. I mean, you'll remember from our course, there's a long, long list of potential policy instruments that governments might want to consider. And so some of this comes to questions of instrument choice and finding instruments that are best suited for the task at hand. Um, I actually think, though, that there are other reasons, and of course all policy has some degree of political considerations behind it, and I don't mean necessarily just partisan, but just choices and preferences and whatnot. Yep. Um, I think that for uh, governments who have particular views about governing and what is the role of government, right, part of the attractiveness of tax expenditures is that it's relatively low overhead, right? You're actually able to outsource a fair amount of the administration to individual tax filers themselves, right? So h and Block. Or uh, effectively, or any other tax filer. Right, or prof financial professionals, right? But the, the, the point is that you do not need necessarily to maintain the same um, uh, program delivery infrastructure and apparatus for accountability purposes, for verification, for administration, right? You've, you've actually been able to outsource some of that. So there's that. There's also, I think, um, something that, that might appeal to some governments about the fact that it is um, the expenditure itself, in the vast majority of cases, because it's, it's conditional, right? It's conditional on having a particular set of circumstances. So, for example, the family tax cut, if you recall, right, it was conditional on being a couple with a child. You only got it if you were already a couple with a child, right? And so in terms of ability to uh, target and ensure compliance um, and results out of a policy objective, there's something attractive, I think, for governments about this, right? It's only conditional, uh, it's conditional on already being in that circumstance or already having engaged in the desired behavior. 
Um, so there's that. But I think there's also um, some appeal to it um, that have to do more with views about um, voters and taxpayers and what they want, right? Um, these are pretty cheerful things to announce, right? And they're they're nicely announceable. You can announce them once, twice, again <laughs> at tax time. Which right? is where governments sort of get into the problem of boutique tax credits, mm -hmm. which is where you see, not, not to put any words in your mouth, um, but where you see governments adding more and more tax expenditures, making the tax code more complicated, and maybe every once and again you should do a review of the tax code mm -hmm. because tax expenditures tend to stay in the code and linger yeah. for years and years, mm -hmm. whereas they're not subject to some of the same budgetary processes Correct. where uh, program spending is and it sunsets or it closes mm -hmm. down and it's reviewed, tax expenditures tend to linger a lot longer mm -hmm. and need to be, you have to sort of go out of your way to review them and to remove them from the books Correct. where sort of inertia keeps them going. And don't forget, there's also, um, I believe, uh, a, sort of a, a sense of an endowment effect, right? That each tax expenditure may have its own constituency that then feels like that's that's my tax credit, right? And mm -hmm. so if you're canceling that, what's, what's the replacement for me, potentially? Um, but as you're right, you know, our system, um, it, we're evolving towards uh, better and and more uh, transparent reporting on the real net cost of these things um, and including them as part of annual reporting on government spending. But you're right, for a long time, the practice was announce it in the budget, um, highlight how much money Canadians will save, right, on, on their taxes as a result of this measure, and then it just kind of becomes part of the furniture, right? And so if you don't have a deliberate effort to take a look um, at the, what is it, I think 180 some odd different, uh, 181, technically 181 different expenditures, so it's, uh, and it adds up. Which adds constitute up. roughly what percentage of the federal budget? Ah, well, see, this is the interesting thing. Of course, these are counted separate and apart from the annual federal uh, uh, direct expenditure budget. Um, now, this is a notional total, right? Because economists will always tell you if you add if you add these things up, they're not um, uh, they're uh, the total that you're going to get is not necessarily exactly what yes. you would otherwise because behavior changes, distortions. Kind of yeah, people will substitute, right? If yeah. you cancel this tax credit, well, I'll just maximize this one instead, for example. Um, but uh, the best estimates are that these, if you were to add them all up, that the federal government alone, so this is not provincial governments, um, that they are um, basically uh, foregoing about $116 billion in annual revenue, which would increase the size of the federal government, in dollar terms, by about another 30%. That's so a, That's a lot of money. It's huge. Uh, it's $116 huge. Billion. Yeah. Uh, billion. Let's put with that in perspective relative to what I, as if I recollect correctly, would be the most recent change to the benchmark or the one most people might be familiar with, which would be the slashing of the GA, GST right. from seven to six to five. Right. Each percentage point on the GST is estimated to be something like $7 billion in federal income. Mm -hmm. So the tax expenditures are making 116 where each point on the GST uh, which obviously is a lot higher profile than sort mm -hmm. of these looming tax expenditures that are in the background mm -hmm. constitutes $7 billion, which is 
seven, eight, eight percent of the still total tax nothing. expenditures. Still not nothing. Seven billion dollars right. is still a heck of a lot of money. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. But but yeah, um, tax expenditures are um, they add up, right? And um, they they are they are an important part of how federal governments are doing public policy and how they're making choices about revenues and expenditure. So just conceptually, yeah. one of the things that's talked about particularly in right-wing politics uh, in the United States, I believe it was Ted Cruz who said something along the lines of, I want taxes to be so simple you can fill them out on the back of a postage card. Sure. So what they're pitching when they talk about this yeah. is removing effectively all these expenditures because you have to go out of your way to apply for expenditures, mm -hmm. simplifying the tax code, right. Working all these into the benchmark so that you're not creating the distortions for better or for worse, mm -hmm. and you're removing sort of all the distortions and perverse incentives that some of these provide. Some mm -hmm. of them are very good, uh, not passing any value judgment on any particular tax expenditures. No rely. But it's rolling them all into the benchmark and ma making the benchmark much simpler, um, and Every, and everyone who has to file their taxes will have a much easier time and it'll cost mm -hmm. them less and it'll be less mm -hmm. of a burden that way. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things I think we've seen in terms of tax policy was one of the conservative candidates recently, um, one of the lesser known ones whose name is eluding me right now, wanted to move towards a consumption tax model, right. cutting the income tax to zero, not, yes. not making a value judgment on this tax policy, but th this is sort of what we're seeing in terms of innovation or proposals mm -hmm. in regards to tax policy is changing the benchmark to remove income tax entirely mm -hmm. and to go entirely towards a consumption tax model, which right. I think for the average person, this sounds incredibly radical. How radical would a proposal like that be? So um, at least when you, you kind of you know mark these things out on, on the whiteboard, um, uh, the, a benchmark that was a comprehensive income versus or comprehensive consumption should actually effectively be the same, right? Uh, with one important caveat Which with is? consumption taxes is that, so remember um, that Haig-Simon's um, definition, right, in terms of it's the change in your resources from point one to point two in time, right? And so um, all of your resources, you've whatever you've earned, you've also either spent or saved, right? And so if you've built up savings over time, then we need some mechanism to then worry about that kind of that delayed consumption. So a consumption tax is only effectively exactly the same as an income tax um, over the lifetime if you also have one end of life estate tax, yeah. right? The tax is one last bit of consumption for what you would have otherwise continued to consume, yeah. right? So there's that. Um, now, is it radical? Um, look, other countries, um, for example, the Nordic countries have embraced something that um, is kind of like a hybrid model. And there, there are some folks in Canada who have who've advocated for that as well. So um, are any of these ideas totally, you know, off the off the grid? No. Um, you know, there are I think there are constituencies, both, you know, left of center, 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 right, right of center, um, who would like to see um, a simpler, more streamlined tax system. Uh, for a variety of reasons, and rethinking some of the reasons and the bases for how we define the tax, uh, the basis for taxation. Um, you know, that said, I think there's also a political consideration, which is, you know, I think it was the, the finance minister in 1971 stood up in the House of Commons and is trying to deal with the Carter Commission, you know, recommendations. 
and says, you know, Canadians like better the devil they know than the devil they don't. So there is this sort of, there is this, this pushback of how much change will Canadians tolerate at any given point in time. Yeah, because telling someone you're going to slash the income tax sounds great. And then saying something like, oh, then we'll have 23% consumption tax. The GST is going to go up to 23%. And right. Internally for any individual voter to say, I have no idea what that means for my sure. finances, sure. Uh, yeah. seems very problematic when sure. you're trying to change these. And raising consumption taxes without other measures can be quite, can be regressive, right? If you think about um, ability to pay. Right. And sort of, again, accepting that for all of us, there is some minimum amount of consumption that we all have to do. Yeah. Right. And if you have high income, you're more likely to consume more in general. But that ability to cover off your essential needs is a lot easier. So, you know, all of these systems have advantages and disadvantages and thinking about interactions really, really matters. All right. Well, thank you for that. That was incredibly enlightening. Okay. I believe uh, Laurent has some other questions for you. Yeah, we want to switching, talk... Uh, switching gears a little bit. Uh, switching gears to a more uh, a broader picture of, of social policies. I know you've been involved in social policy research and yeah. working with yeah. the government at various points and times in your life. I'm working uh, from outside. Yeah, and outside, inside, yes, various, sure, various sure. points on uh, on social policy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we were talking before, before we started recording that mm-hmm. um, I think that the universality of social programs versus means testing of social programs yeah. is the most visible split right now between the, the broad left and the broad center left. Mm. Um, and you, I, I think you see, you seemed a little surprised by that assertion. Um, well, I guess maybe you could tell me more about where, so which constituencies would you sort of define and how do you think the support for one versus the other plays out? Sure. So uh, to take an example from the last federal election, um, we had uh, the NDP proposing universal child care. Right. And we had the Liberals proposing uh, the more means-tested uh, Canada child benefit that mm-hmm. would go out as a cash payment rather than like a universal equal right. level for everybody. Right. Um, so I, I think that that's indicative. You also have in the U.S. the sort of playing out of, you know, public option or single payer versus the eventual, uh, you know, uh, mandate Mm-hmm. subsidies mm-hmm. and uh, all the other things that make the Affordable Care Act work or not, as the case may be. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, there seems to be a concern for efficiency and redistributive uh, efficiency again, yeah. uh, versus a sort of broader approach to just like give everybody the mm-hmm. thing right. and uh, there you go. Okay. So I'm just curious, what like do you think that that's that's a reasonable take on the big divide between left and center left right now? Or? Well, I've certainly heard, um, actually, not even necessarily specifically on the left, right? But like during the previous election campaign, you kind of looked at what all three parties were proposing vis-a-vis their um, benefits for for children, families with children, right? Um, and I think at least a few commentators had noted it was so odd to see the conservatives being the party trying to defend universal child benefits, right? right? Yeah. That what in what universe did we suddenly switch, right? Yeah, you that, would have expected, uh, like, if you had put those three proposals in front of someone and then right. gave people descriptions of three parties, right. you would have expected the liberals to have the conservative position, the NDP to hold the position they did, and the conservatives to have the liberal position. But that was not the case. See, child benefits to me um, is a really fascinating um, uh, case study, right? Because we have evolved over time from a, um, a you know a very targeted, means-tested, um, residual kind of benefit, 
that was paid specifically to moms. Can we back up and yeah. explain what means testing means in this sure. context? That's a sure. good good question. Yeah, sure. good point. And you know what? I realize actually I'm probably so. When people talk, they use the term means test or needs tests actually almost interchangeably, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, a means test uh, could be in the form of income or assets or both, but we, it's basically we look at what resources do you have and then we're gonna determine what benefit you're entitled to on the basis of that. Needs test, on the other hand, says it's usually kind of a budget deficit model. It sort of says, let's take a look at you know who's in your family, what needs you have, and let's come up with what's a minimum amount to kind of keep yeah. you afloat. And that's mostly how, for example, social assistance systems now work. Um, but federal child benefits, for example, are means tested in the sense that um, certainly the Canada child benefit is now, um, but we actually used to have a hybrid system, right? And so there were some benefits that were paid regardless of, of what your family income was. We taxed some of it back, but you just, you got the benefit, right? Uh, whereas the other ones, it depends on what's your net family income for the purpose of administering the program. So that's kind of the broad idea, right? It's it's a way of targeting by either income or by by assets right. of, of what means testing means. Anyway, um, but but on child benefits, it's it's an interesting example because we have gone through a series of of policy evolutions on this one that have kind of mimicked and mirrored an awful lot of the broader debates around the welfare state. Yeah, really, right? Yeah. Um, and we we did have a, a period of time of of universal child benefits, kind of a, the idea of a of a demigrant, right? That yeah. you know, you had a kid, you were entitled to this amount of money, right, by just virtue of citizenship and residence and childbearing, yeah. right? I'm not, I'm not sure you're supposed to use the entitlements word when you're talking about the, uh, the conservative tax policies. <laughs> but that one actually had been embraced um, in kind of the post-war period by conservative and liberal governments yeah. alike, right? And it was part of a, a, a sense of what the role of the, the welfare state was. Uh, enter the 80s, and we see the first revamp under the Mulroney government of child benefits and a move away from universalism to a more targeted approach, which then gets revamped yet again under the Chrétien government. And then you have a Harper government, as so a conservative government, come in and leave that infrastructure intact, right? Like they left the targeted child benefit intact and added a layer of a universal flat entitlement that was then subject to taxation. And so I think, you know, some of the concern from people who study this, and certainly one of my concerns when I was looking at it, were the odd effects that this kind of bifurcated system led to, mm -hmm. right? And so there are, uh, at least on the, 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 the revamped child uh, benefit system now, I think that there's a good case to be made for um, uh, more efficiency and having one single system as opposed to the two. Um, I think there's a decent case to be made in terms of, uh, you know, more transparency uh, and clarity around what families are actually getting at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, we can certainly have a, have a discussion about whether or not it is progressive enough, mm -hmm. right? But there is that issue of if you're continuing to pay, to, to cover the cost of paying the demigrant to high-income families yeah. who don't need it, that does mean you're not putting in the same resources to other families who could otherwise really truly right. benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah. All this to say, um, 
I don't know that there is a single response or answer around should we have universal versus no, yeah, for, right. it's, uh, right? yeah, it's, it's not a yeah. It was, yeah. It's just curious because I think that it really is becoming um, the the big nexus of debate between the left and the center left. And I, I think we're in the U.S., for instance, mm-hmm. um, given that Obamacare is now imperiled. I think is, mm-hmm. is probably a good way to put it. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism on the left that because the program is so complicated right. uh, and so targeted and right. so so fiddly that it didn't create a constituency that could easily defend it. You know, we're talking about how the tax credits right. do because they're, they're quite simple in the sense that each of them individually is quite simple. Um, and then they, they sort of create self-perpetuating defense mechanisms. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. you couldn't have someone, you know, it's a standard conservative position Mm-hmm. In Canada, that healthcare should not be tied to ability to pay, uh, and you know, public schooling should not be tied to ability to pay, um, and uh, you know, because it's just it's a logic that is selectively applied, um, and you know, in the other direction as well. Well, that's certainly been one of the um, you know in the literature around universalism. That's it's certainly it's the durability, right? Yeah. Or the supposed durability of of universal programming is always. And I'll be honest, it, that was an argument claim, right? that. I have been skeptical of because it struck mm-hmm. me as as fuzzy, in the sense that it's very hard to quantify how mm-hmm. defended an yeah. institution is. I think I have shifted my perspective on this in the aftermath of the U.S. election because I am seeing mm-hmm. how vulnerable a lot of these these policies are, and the prospect of having healthcare yanked from twenty five million people sure. because they were very obsessed with having you know the wonkiest health law possible in two thousand eight two thousand nine. Seems like ish that may have been a. Uh, a misstep. So it, it strikes me that um, part of the problem is is what's the what's the baseline that you're starting from? Yeah. Right. And if you're um, uh, if you're moving from a system that has some targeted measures already right into a universal system, good old path dependency. There is that issue. Yeah. Right. There's that real issue. And I, th- you know, the Obama care uh, is an interesting. Um, example in terms of trying looking at a government trying to figure out how do we how do we make some kind of progress given a complicated yeah. and complex issue and you know imperfect control frankly over the levers of decision making yeah. given their system and uh, you know I think they felt like this was this was as good as they were going to get it at this time and some progress on the file was better than no progress yeah. at all and I think they their calculus was you know a universal system was not not going to be possible yeah right look I the plural of anecdote not evidence obviously <laughs> right but I think if we were to just the three of us even sit and talk through a couple of different examples it's also pretty clear that in as much as universalism um, can act as a protective buffer for the durability of programs, it's imperfect. Yeah. It's really imperfect. Yeah, that, that is, I think, totally fair. Yeah. Um, I just, I've, I've become much less skeptical of the argument since sort of seeing it in action. Um, and yeah, like I said, for me, it was just that it, it was hard to quantify. I was very skeptical of like, oh, well, you know, you can't put a, can't put a number on that. Right. Uh, and I, yeah. I have fairly wonky instincts. So for me, that was like, mm, I was suspicious of this. But yeah, it's a, it seems to be that, that there's more to it than I, than I initially had... Uh, suspected or, or given credit to. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, in the sort of whether this kind of uh, debate plays out more uh, more broadly in Canada over the next couple of years. Because I, I think uh, we're, we're seeing like how much 
the liberal government relies on, mm-hmm. you know, the, the means testing package and the, you know, privatizing infrastructure and all this stuff. And I think we're going to see how well people respond to it. Will be an interesting case study of how well does this stuff work as politics rather than right. as policy. Let me add another level of complexity to it too, is that sometimes by virtue of program design features, um, things end up being thinly universal. Yeah. Right? And sure. that they're not actually universally accessible. Yeah. Or the quality is very uneven. Sure. So you're like public schooling, for instance. Sure. Uh, public schooling, you, know, you have excellent public schools and you have quite bad public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, for a long time, we had the on-reserve funding gap uh, or, or on-reserve uh uh, native schools did not get the same amount of funding and didn't right. grow at the same rate as right. uh, provincial schools. You know, and likewise, I think, you know, the, the Quebec daycare system is another interesting example sure. of looking at, on the one hand, there is this universal entitlement to a space, right, at a ceiling cost. But then looking at, you know, what does that mean in terms of access, uniform access to quality of care? How do people then who have more private resources basically vote with their wallet. Yeah. Um, So I think those questions around, are we designing programs that are intended to be universal and really truly are accessible to people who are otherwise more disadvantaged? I think that's a really important question. And it's sometimes, I I kind of see that as the challenge Mm -hmm. of left-wing politics is that universalism demands not thin universalism. It demands, like, for instance, the the, the case of uh, free university education. Right. Uh, people often say it decreases access equity, which is empirically true. Uh, I spent a year in Scotland, and for instance, in Scotland, since introducing free university tuition, yes. the rate of people from low-income area high schools attending Scottish universities has actually gone down. Right. Uh, which seems like that's that's like unambiguously bad. Um. But I think that the challenge of left-wing politics is embracing universalism with an eye to actually making that a reality uh, and, like, maintaining access equity or broadening access equity should be, like, I mean, without that, what's the point of, uh, of free university education? Well, remember the trade-off, right, of, of the argument in favor of universality on social policy has always been that if you build a constituency within the middle class... yeah that's a voter base that governments cannot ignore. And so if the middle class feels like they are reaping a benefit, they will fight to retain this program um, that, you know, hopefully helps the disadvantaged people too. But if you're designing it to uh, run to meet the needs of middle class people, there are going to be trade-offs and there are going to be times it makes a program or an intervention actually less, less accessible. accessible yeah like daycare less responsive daycare right? once again people who work irregular hours right very tricky for them to have the nine to five daycare absolutely yeah yeah uh thanks so much for your time today yeah I absolutely think, uh, thank you this has been fun yeah this it, has been fun yeah thank you so much and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on soon that would be fun all right take care thanks again to professor jennifer robson for her generosity with her time uh, for the last uh, last closing segment of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about um, current events and uh, especially Trudeau's sort of uh, get back in touch with everyone tour and his, uh, how that's been going so far. His cross-Canada checkup to the small towns across uh, Ontario, Quebec. Did he go into Nova Scotia with it as uh, well? Yeah, because well, he, he met up with those students from Dal. That's correct. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so... I think you'd probably agree with me when I say that this tour hasn't been a massive success so far. 
Um, the optics of it have always been sort of tainted by the Agricon. I'll, I'll call it the Agricon scandal. Billionaire Island. Bill, billionaire Island Gate. Um, and the media has always been very sharp-tongued by always reiterating in every story about it that this is a tour and Damage he's avoiding tour. Davos uh, yeah. 100% in order to sort of pander to the common man. And so he's not hanging out with more billionaires because that, that would look optically bad. So he's doing the exact opposite and he's going to go on a cross-Canada selfie tour in order to rehabilitate his reputation afterwards. But it, it hasn't been all that successful. There have been a lot of bad headlines coming out of it. Yeah. Uh, so, for instance, in Ontario, he had he could, he was confronted by a woman uh, who was in tears over her hydro bills, which, of course, you know, isn't the federal government's responsibility, but because of the you know shared liberal brand between the Ontario government and the federal government, uh, sort of splashed back on him. Uh, in Quebec, he had a really bizarre sort of kerfuffle when he uh, responded to a question in English in French and said that in Quebec we speak French, which is probably a record for the first time a liberal prime minister has, like, out <laughs> francophoned, like, the PQ. The PQ leader of François Lisée was almost, like, confused. He was like, wait, why is this a problem? I would have just responded in English. <laughs> <laughs> just like, okay, well, When, when uh... the separatists are confused with your language policy being, yeah. you know, too French? Yeah. Um, it might be time to reconsider what you're doing. Yeah, I think that was one of those things where he, he thought he was being very politically clever. And I, I have to say, in general, uh, the prime minister is not at his best unscripted. Uh, that's historically been a problem for him. Even when he was a uh, leader of the third party, uh, he'd often have problems. You know, the whip out our CF-18s controversy that, you know, sort of dominated the news cycle. The China is, uh, you know, the most favored administration's one, uh, where he, he said China, he admired China as, as his favorite. Uh, China's basic dictatorship, has been, basic able, dictatorship. has been able to turn around the environment on a dime, I think yeah. is roughly uh, the context yeah, of which, that. Which, to be fair to him, he also said that he admired uh, none of its uh, nonpartisan legislature. But uh, uh, One of the other great lines that came out of it was in regards to his ability to relate to the uh, I believe immigrant experience. Oh my goodness! When yes, he talked really about one. his uh, grandfather, who's Scottish, and moved to Canada at a relatively young age, uh, three years old. At, yeah, three, years, three years, old. years old. Yeah, and he can very much relate to his grandfather coming across to Canada at three years old, several generations before he was alive. Also, it's worth noting that uh, Justin Trudeau's maternal grandfather, James Sinclair, was a federal politician and a cabinet minister yes he was it's not exactly like you know like oh papa we are poor immigrants <laughs> who are scottish um and i'm not sure he was ever alive during you know the struggle of the new the new immigrant coming to canada it was several generations later his father was prime minister i think it's not a very compelling case to make no that justin born in the lap of luxury with no. the literal silver spoon in his mouth can very much relate to Syrian refugees based on their hardships and their struggle. And, you know, I don't doubt that he feels genuine empathy for a lot of people. I mean, feeling empathy is, like, something he he very... He he does well in public, especially. But, like, uh, yeah, it's hard to sort of link your experience when you're the son of a former prime minister to, like... Anyway. What, um, What I see this as was a misfiring of his sort of standard formula... Yes. ...of how he answers questions. Absolutely. Which... Begins with empathy relating to the experience, goes into talking points, and then it returns to reiterating how important the question is and how important this is to him and how he'll pledge to do better. And this misfires when 
he can't actually empathize or it's bad that he's empathizing with sort of the common experience of the other person because they're not applicable to him. Yeah. It's like someone who's in, you know, desperate poverty and he goes, yes, yes, I know the struggles of poverty. There was one time where uh, our cupboards were bare and we had to send the butler out to go get food. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a, actually a very good left critique of a... Uh... Of Justin Trudeau there. Thanks, Etienne. He tried. <laughs> I take that all back. Um, also, he had that, in, that incident in uh, in Halifax, I think, or Dartmouth. Sorry to the, the residents <laughs> of those lovely Twin Cities, if I've mistaken uh, which one he was at, where uh, a couple of Dalhousie students uh, confronted him for a selfie, as, as many young women have been prone to do in recent years. Probably probably getting into the upper ten to 20,000 range yeah, at this probably point. Probably quadruple digits. I would sure. love to know the actual number. Yeah, no, I, it's probably tightly classified and, and guarded. <laughs> um, but what they did was, instead of taking a picture, they took a video, and then about halfway through started asking him a question about implementing the United Nations Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh at which point he made, I think, probably the best face I've ever seen on a human being and uh, ran away. You ever sort of wake up in the middle of the night, turn the lights, and you see a spider right beside you? Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, oh, well, uh, let, let me tell you, we, we're very caring, and this is what my government's doing. You could really see him go into sort of issues management or switch Crisis from mode, selfie yeah. mode to media response mode. Yeah. But you mentioned, actually, that this has a... A side implication as well. I would love to see this used as a common tactic by people on the left or the right to just ruin this selfie image he has where if one in every ten people start recording him and asking him questions while he's doing these selfies, this will really diminish one of the most potent self-promotion tools the Prime Minister has. Absolutely. We talked about this briefly on our first episode, episode zero, uh, where Justin Trudeau is actually able to really use like word of mouth advertising in the form of your friends posting pictures with him on their Facebook walls. Um, and if that tool is taken away from him, I mean, it's, you know, it's not the end. It's not like he, he's like a, a being of, of magic fueled by, <laughs> fueled by selfies. Uh, but he's not far from it either. That's true. Uh, so it would hurt. Uh, so that, that's an interesting, actually, tactical thing that I think, uh, yeah, if, if there are any protesters listening, uh, there you go. Have it for free. I'm And in terms of sort of Facebook self-promotion, for those that don't align themselves with the liberals, if they want to go to the Prime Minister's events and ask him hard-hitting questions on video, yeah, that makes a phenomenal thing to post on your own Facebook it went page. Very, it went viral, right? It went like, viral. People saw it all over the country. Incredibly popular thing to do, and I think it should become increasingly popular. If yep. you want to talk to him about, if you're right-leaning or left-leaning, military spending, or you know any of the failed uh, policy commitments of the government so far, do it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a good idea. Uh, I pledge to do it if I'm ever in that position, <laughs> but I hope I never am. That is fair. Uh, with that, we think what we'll leave you for this week. Uh, thanks so much for listening once again. Uh, remember to rate and uh, rate and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and whatever other platforms. Follow us on Twitter, uh, at ShortPantsPod. Wherever good podcasts are wherever sold podcasts and distributed sold freely. Distributed. Yeah, the, the storehouse of goods as uh, described in Marx's critique of the Gotha program. <laughs> had to go there <laughs> <laughs> okay but thanks so much guys uh, and we'll get back uh, next week with some more hot content